The Tom Woods Show, episode 1201. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, the Contra Cruise, hosted by Bob Murphy and me, which people absolutely rave about, is back for a third year. Featuring special guests Jeff Deist, Naomi Brockwell, and Brett Vinat, this year promises to be the best one yet. Great folks, great fun, an unforgettable time. Sign up at ContraCruise.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Very interesting conversation today. We're joined by Rebecca Brown, who's director of policy at something called the Innocence Project. And the Innocence Project seeks to prevent and reveal wrongful convictions and assure compensation for the wrongfully convicted upon release from prison. So that generates a lot of questions about how is it that people are wrongfully convicted? What goes wrong? Is it corruption? What's really happening here that we have so many cases of this? And the story of the Innocence Project itself is just very, very interesting, and not enough people know about it. In fact, I didn't know about it until relatively recently, so we want to introduce it to you today. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. What an interesting and important thing it is that you and the Innocence Project are doing. I found out about it because my friend Ben Settle on Facebook did a fundraiser for it, I guess, on his birthday, which is a relatively new thing. You can ask your friends that if you really want to make me feel good on my birthday, you can donate to my cause. And that was how I found out about the Innocence Project. Can you tell me just the basic history of the organization, how long it's been around, and what was the catalyst in getting the organization started? Sure. So the Innocence Project was founded 25 years ago at the Benjamin Cardozo School of Law here in New York City in 1992, and it became an independent nonprofit organization um, in 2004. And the catalyst was really that our co-founders, Barry Sheck and Peter Newfeld, who uh, are criminal defense lawyers, were really seeing the probative value of DNA evidence, just the power of DNA evidence and its ability to um, help to solve crimes. And it occurred to them that DNA evidence could also be used to prove the innocence of people who had been wrongfully convicted. So that was really the catalyst, that they really were recognizing recognizing the value of DNA and how it could be applied, you know, in a post-conviction setting to, to free the innocent. And, um, and since that time, the Innocence Project, along with a network of innocence organizations around the country, have freed 358 people through post-conviction DNA testing. Wow, that's amazing. Now, is it just DNA testing or can it also be a case where a, a key witness changes testimony? I don't even know legally how that works. If you could retry in that case, how does that work? You can, and that's a great question. Um, and yes, more and more cases are also being proven through non-DNA evidence. And actually, there's another registry called the National Registry of Exonerations, which tracks both DNA and non-DNA cases around the United States. And they've identified approximately 2,200 wrongful convictions that have been overturned through both DNA and non-DNA. So non-DNA, the way that works is that you know, people um, go back into court after their convictions, but generally are very limited in the types of claims they can make. They really can only present newly discovered evidence. And in many instances, there are time bars or time restrictions around how people can get back into court or whether they can even get back into court. So, you know, for instance, um, in the state of Pennsylvania, currently you have 60 days from your conviction to introduce newly discovered evidence of innocence. So, you know, we're really trying to kind of change those frameworks, those, you know, time limitations in state after state so that innocent people who don't have the benefit of DNA can get back into court and prove their innocence. 
you must get quite a few requests from people to review their cases. So what kind of criteria do you use to decide on which cases you're going to take on? That's a great question. So we have a very uh, strong intake and evaluation unit here at the Innocence Project, and they are a, a team of, I believe, 11 people who are constantly calling through mail, court documents, police reports, crime lab reports, all sorts of reports to determine whether or not a case rises to the level of, you know, being taken on by our legal team. And, you know, there are many questions that they ask. I mean, certainly, traditionally, we've only looked at cases where DNA could prove guilt or innocence. Um, We are broadening that a bit now for the first time into non-DNA cases. Um, Certainly, innocence organizations around the country, though, have been looking at non-DNA cases for quite some time. But, you know, we, we evaluate cases on their merits as they come in. And, you know, if we feel that there is a, you know, a strong claim of innocence, um, we either try to push for post-conviction DNA testing where DNA exists, or we have to basically reinvestigate the case where DNA does not exist to try to uncover, you know, other indicia of innocence. Now, here's what I find most interesting are the various factors contributing to these tragic outcomes. So there are problems of eyewitness misidentification and uh, a number of other factors. In fact, I think you even have a section of the website dealing with these. So what would you say out of all the factors tending to lead to wrongful conviction is the most common? So in the DNA cases, the single largest contributing factor to wrongful conviction is eyewitness misidentification. But when you look at the non-DNA cases as well, you know, the numbers shift a bit. Um, but what we do know is that the common contributing factors are present, you know, across DNA and non-DNA cases. We know what they are. It's eyewitness misidentification. We know false confessions play a large role in wrongful convictions. For instance, about a quarter of the DNA-based exonerations involved someone confessing to a crime they did not commit. And these are very serious crimes. They're rapes and murders, generally, cases where DNA is available for testing. So we know that that's a huge problem. We know that, um, you know, misapplied forensics is an enormous problem. Using forensic disciplines that, you know, have not been validated in a clinical setting. We don't know the error rates, but yet we have forensic analysts at times on, on the stand basically attesting to the probative value of a particular kind of evidence without a known error rate, but yet referring to it as a match. So, you know, there are a lot of forensic issues that plague our cases. Um, And, you know, the use of jailhouse informants is really creeping up as a huge contributing cause. 20% of the nation's DNA-based exonerations, I'm sorry, but I think 15% involved a jailhouse informant coming forward to say that a person confessed that they committed a crime to them. Um, These people are inherently unreliable. They themselves are facing their own charges. um, And there's obviously a great incentive for them to come forward and to say that another person confessed to a different crime um, in order to get their charges reduced or to somehow receive some benefits. So a huge problem also in our cases. So there are many contributing factors. There's also sort of more traditional reasons for wrongful convictions like ineffective assistance of counsel, you know, poor lawyering, prosecutorial misconduct. So there's a whole range of issues. And and often in our cases, you know, when you look at a case, it looks like there's piles of evidence against somebody, but it's actually more of a house of cards when you really unpack the evidence. Um, so if folks are interested in reading more about the causes of wrongful conviction, we encourage them to go to our website, www.innocenceproject.org. I'd like to pursue the the issue of misconduct by prosecutors. I think that would be a particular interest to my audience. I'm looking on your site 
And it says common forms of misconduct by prosecutors include withholding exculpatory evidence from defense, deliberately mishandling, mistreating, or destroying evidence, allowing witnesses they know or should know are not truthful to testify, pressuring defense witnesses not to testify, relying on fraudulent forensic experts, and making misleading arguments that overstate the probative value of testimony. Can you elaborate on any of these? This is, uh, to the naive ear, this sounds uh, rather shocking. It does. And I think, you know, we really do have an enormous problem in this country relating to um, the disclosure of exculpatory material, meaning evidence that seems to negate the guilt of somebody not being turned over to the defense at trial. And, you know, and I think that that is just a major cause of wrongful conviction. We've seen it in case after case Um, here in New York State, for instance, there was a case of a man, I believe his name is Jonathan Fleming. He was convicted of a crime that took place in Brooklyn while he was down at Disneyland with his family. And there were actually hotel employees that attested to the fact that he was at the hotel. There were family photographs. Um, There was actually even, I think, a record of him paying a phone bill while he was down in Florida. And all of that information was suppressed by the prosecution, not handed over to the defense. And Mr. Fleming ultimately spent more than two decades behind bars for a crime he didn't commit. And had that information been handed over, the defense would have been in a position to actually investigate the different leads in that case. So it was really just tragic. Is there any way to, of course, obviously there's no way to really come up with an estimate, but I'm just trying to come up with an answer for somebody who asks me how common this kind of miscarriage of justice is. I mean, maybe people might say this is extremely uncommon, but these outliers still involve individual lives that are ruined, and so we need to be attentive to that. Or do you think it's more than just a series of outliers that are statistically insignificant? I mean, what does your gut instinct tell you? Well, my gut instinct tells me that there, you know, that we have a system, we live in a system that's built on a series of incentives that are just baked into the system. And certainly in a prosecutor's office, you know, you're incentivized to win a case. Um, And so, I mean, am I arguing that all prosecutors, you know, are therefore, you know, unethical? Absolutely not. I think there are a ton of prosecutors doing their jobs and doing it well and right. But do I think that there's also sort of a a cultural element of winning? Yes, I do. Uh, A win at all cost sort of notion, you know, yes, that can happen. And I think that, you know, the, the best way that we can sort of protect against that is to have various systems in place to sort of almost protect us from ourselves as humans, right? If there's a built-in incentive to win cases, there's going to be a built-in incentive to, you know, overlook evidence that, you know, appears to be exculpatory. I don't think all of this is intentional. I think sometimes this is based on, you know, cognitive bias or tunnel vision, meaning that, you know, a prosecutor believes they have the right guy, they're prosecuting the right guys, new information comes in that seems to negate that in some way, um, and they overlook it or they don't, they underestimate its importance because they're convinced they have the right guy. So I think, you know, all the more important that we have, you know, a discovery process, meaning a process whereby the prosecution hands information over to the defense that is open, early and broad, meaning that it's, you know, it's open to the defense. It's handed over early enough that the defense can investigate. And it's broad, meaning that there aren't assessments that are permitted by the prosecution about what is material evidence or not. It is all, you know, ultimately evidence that belongs to the people. And so, you know, it's information that both sides are entitled to, to, you know, put forward their best cases. 
Before we continue, I'd like to say a big thank you to a service that my listeners are raving about and are so glad they learned about on The Tom Woods Show, and that's Skillshare, which is like the Netflix of online learning. One membership at Skillshare gets you access to over 20,000 classes in all kinds of areas that can give you a leg up in your profession or help you get that side hustle started or even your own business. Everything from photography and design to marketing, entrepreneurship, technology, business, productivity, Google Analytics, social media strategy, whatever you can think of, Skillshare has got it. I'm always on you guys about the importance of starting some kind of thing on the side, and Skillshare is practically handing you a skill on a silver platter. So I want to urge you to join the millions of students already on Skillshare today with a special offer just for my listeners. Get two months of Skillshare for just 99 cents. That's right. Skillshare is offering Tom Wood Show listeners two months of unlimited access to over 20,000 classes for just 99 cents. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com woods. Again, go to Skillshare.com woods to start your two months now. That's Skillshare.com woods. I want to also ask you about the role of law enforcement officials, because also on your website, I read that common forms of misconduct by law enforcement officials include employing suggestion when conducting identification procedures, coercing false confessions, lying or intentionally misleading jurors about their observations, failing to turn over exculpatory evidence to prosecutors, and providing incentives to secure unreliable evidence from informants. Again, rather a shocking list. Right. And again, I mean, I think that, you know, these are all things that can happen. Um, and, you know, uh, we don't want to suggest that this is how law enforcement conduct themselves broadly. But I do think that these are elements that we've seen in many of our cases time and again. So they certainly represent more than just an anomaly. It's it's really, you know, there are times that we have seen patterns of misconduct and patterns of problems. And I think, you know, to, to speak to one of the first ones that you raised, right, suggestion during a lineup procedure, a lot of suggestion that is provided during, you know, the course of an identification procedure is done so unintentionally. Again, this goes back to human factors, right? If law enforcement believes that they've zeroed in on the right suspect, they might sort of communicate in their conduct to the eyewitness information about their hope that the eyewitness will select a particular person. And sometimes that's done inadvertently. Sometimes it's done, um, you know, really with not intentional suggestion at all, but it's just still communicated to the eyewitness. And we've seen that play out in study after study. And so as a result, you know, one of the reforms we call for, you know, in our policy shop is for law enforcement to use a blind administrator when they're conducting lineups, namely a person who does not know the suspect's identity so that they can't provide any sort of suggestion to the eyewitness. And so, you know, there are different things we can do at various points in the process that really sort of protect people from their human nature. Um, And this would be any one of us. And, you know, I don't mean to suggest that this is, you know, only the fault of, you know, prosecutors or only the fault of law enforcement. I mean, defense lawyers, all of us are, you know, subject to, you know, all sorts of biases, uh, cognitive bias and, and, and various other human factors that will impact how we both investigate, prosecute and defend cases. What are the means used to coerce a false confession? Well, sometimes, you know, it can be intentional means like through certain deceptive interrogation methods, right? There are methods, um, well, we're at, 
I should rephrase that. There are methods that are used. Uh, one is a very commonly used interrogation method called the read method, which actually permits deception, trickery, and it's a guilt presumptive technique. It really assumes that the person being interviewed is guilty and you're trying to just extract that confession from them. So that's already sort of a, a, a lens that is not a helpful lens through which to get information in a non-biased way. Um, so sometimes it's the interrogation methods themselves. Sometimes it's, you know, the mental state of the person being interviewed, um, right? They might be exhausted. They might um, have, you know, be addicted to nicotine or drugs and not have access to those things. Um, they might be, um, there are other instances where the person is subjected to hours and hours and hours of interrogation and all they want to do is get out of the room. And I would say, you know, when you're talking about innocent people, innocent people aren't seeking the protections that guilty people do. They don't even ask for a lawyer. They think I'm going to just tell the truth and this will all get sorted out and then I'll right. be able to go home. Right. Yeah, that's, that, that is a big problem. That's a, a lot of people just talk and talk and think that, well, uh, you know, there's justice in the world and surely I'll be exonerated. You gave us a, one example. Can you give us one or two more examples of people the Innocence Project has helped? Because I've looked at some of the cases, some of the individuals, and it's I think that really is the most evocative kind of um, aspect of what you do. Is, to, is In other words, for us to get familiar with actual people whose lives were transformed by the work you guys do. Absolutely. Well, you know, you asked before about uh, a DNA versus non-DNA case. This case sort of has elements of both. And I, and I raise it because I think it's a really interesting one. It's a case out of Virginia of a man named Keith Harward. Um, Keith had been in the military at the time of the case. I believe that he was um, in the Navy. Um, and he was, um, and there was a woman who had been brutally raped. And he, I believe, was a uh, ultimately convicted on the basis of a couple of pieces of evidence. One was a hypnotized eyewitness who was actually not the victim of the crime, but just somebody who I believe was, you know, near him where he was stationed. Um, and so she was, she was, she misidentified Keith, um, after being hypnotized. So, you know, put that aside. He was also, uh, convicted on the basis of bite mark evidence, which is evidence that has been basically entirely delegitimized at this point, but this was evidence that was used to convict him that basically a bite mark left on the victim matched the dental imprint that he would have left with his teeth. And in fact, we were able to many, many years later conduct DNA testing on the saliva that surrounded the bite mark in that case, of course, did not match him. It was not Keith at all. Keith had spent, you know, years upon years behind bars. This was a person who served our country and, you know, and basically was proven innocent based on the DNA, the saliva that surrounded the bite mark that originally convicted him. Wow. <laughs> Pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah, that's astonishing. I mean, a person's life was ruined over that. Correct. And we have, you know, unbelievable, I mean, we have folks that have served upwards of 35, 40 years behind bars for crimes they didn't commit. Um, so it really does turn people's lives absolutely upside down, you know, ruins lives, but it also, you know, ruins the lives of their loved ones. Um, you know, if you have a father stuck behind bars, you know, that is not insignificant. That is something that absolutely you carry through with you, you know, throughout your life. Um, so, I mean, we, we shouldn't also forget the ripple effects of a wrongful conviction. They really implicate everyone. They hurt everyone. They hurt the community. They hurt loved ones. They hurt law enforcement. When law enforcement learned that they were involved in a wrongful conviction, that's very harmful. And certainly the victim of the original crime never gets justice. I wonder, even though 
obviously the legal procedure is where your responsibility is and you, you wouldn't do anything like follow-up job training or anything like that, but you might still have some anecdotal evidence about what these people's lives are like now once they are suddenly released and they're back out in the world after years and years of incarceration. Do you have any kind of follow-up stories? We do. I mean, we, we have um, a social work department here that works with our clients once they come out. And, you oh, know, and, okay. I actually didn't know that. Right. And, you know, and we, we do have the opportunity to meet and, and spend time with several of our clients once they come out. And, you know, it's really, there are various, you know, it's a mixed bag. You know, I mean, I, there are some people who really had incredibly strong family ties or are incredibly, you know, faith-based and, you know, and a lot of those folks tend to do better. But I will say that there is not one client who comes home that doesn't suffer minimally from post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, it, the unique horror of wrongful conviction is probably everyone's worst nightmare. Um, and so, you know, people are coming home, you know, really mentally crushed and having to kind of rebuild their lives again. And of course, don't forget, they miss many years of professional development. They miss years of being able to, you know, have a family um, or raise children. Um, a lot of people are robbed of the opportunity to even have children. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of feelings of what could have been and what would have been. Um, had the wrongful conviction not happened. So, you know, again, I, I don't want to suggest that everyone is doing horribly once they come home. That's not the case. And I, I've really been just so inspired by so many of our clients who've really just have so much positivity and really move forward in a very positive way. But, you know, I would be remiss to suggest that, you know, it's it's um, a Cinderella story or a happy story on the other side. It's, it's, it's you know, it's really, you know, people don't have anything. And they get less than folks who, you know, are leaving prison and, you know, have some services because they're sort of in a no man's land. They're innocent. And that's not to suggest that people shouldn't get, you know, probation or parole services once they come home, guilty or innocent. But, you know, the fact is that because our, our clients are really in a no man's land, they're legally innocent. They don't really get much of anything unless, you know, a state passes a compensation law to make sure that they are compensated. And that varies widely state to state. Can you trace out and possibly with a timeline, which I know is variable, but the entire process from the moment I submit to you the details of my case to the moment I am either exonerated or not? Well, it's a it's a good question, but it really varies widely. Um, you know, in many instances, when people write to us, you know, it, it can take years because we have a backlog of cases just to get through those cases. Um, we're really tightening that window now. So hopefully folks are going to be hearing from us much sooner because we have more staff dedicated to that. But, um, you know, that can just take a long time. And, and when, when they first write to us, we often have to then go about collecting tons of records, police reports, court documents, crime lab reports, hospital records. That takes time. Um, we then are, um, in many instances, when we believe there's a strong claim of innocence, then going to the prosecutor in that jurisdiction and asking them to consent to post-conviction DNA testing. Um, and if we are unsuccessful in receiving their consent, we are then engaging in protracted litigation, which can take years and years just to get a post-conviction DNA test. So, you know, on average, our clients spend, I believe it's 14 years behind bars before they're exonerated. And those are the DNA-based cases. And the non-DNA cases are that much more difficult because you're basically reinvestigating an entire case. You don't have a simple test that you can do um, that gives you answers. You have to really reconstruct the entire case. Right. Okay. All right. I get the difference. So 
How are you guys funded? Obviously, is it just voluntary contributions and is it just voluntary contributions from individuals or are there foundations helping you out? Sure. So um, there are a few uh, federal to state grant programs that fund both DNA and non-DNA work. Our office, the Innocence Project, does not receive them, but we do work to uh, make sure those funding streams stay alive to fund the rest of the Innocence Network, namely the Innocence organizations around the country um, that are not as large as us and, you know, really need those resources to stay afloat. Um, So there's some government funding, but by and large, most of these projects are funded through individual donations and foundation funding, and certainly ours is entirely funded that way. So when you say a network, you have a bunch of, it's not like it's run from one central office. You have places at at universities, for example, and other parts of the country. That's exactly right. So we have um, almost 60 innocence organizations around the country, which are their own organizations. They're not affiliates of ours. They're independently run, but we are all together part of a, you know, a loose network of organizations that we, for instance, have an annual conference together where we all get together. We have an annual policy conference where just the folks who are engaged in the policy work get together from around the country. But these are projects that are run independently and are doing their own fundraising, um, and so, obviously, we are supportive of, you know, the federal to state funding that supports their work. But generally speaking, they are raising their own money. Well, that is uh, what you've told us so far is, um, I mean, I want to say it's very uplifting. But, of course, at the same time, if these people's lives hadn't been ruined in the first place, you wouldn't have to uplift them. But right. at least somebody's out there doing this. They have a voice. There is a institutional structure in place that is able to review cases and pursue justice. And that is, uh, that's certainly something that is a, a candle in the darkness, so to speak. So innocenceproject.org is the website where people can find out more and where they can help out. That's it. And, you know, and we're really grateful to listeners who want to learn more and support our work. Well, absolutely. I'm going to I'll link to it at uh, this is episode 1201. So I'll link to that at tomwoods.com slash 1201. And I urge people without a doubt to check out innocenceproject.org. Rebecca, thanks so much for your time today. Oh, thank you. We're so thankful to you all. All right, folks, before I let you go, I want to let you know about something one of my listeners is up to. He's got a firm called Get It Done Records, and they are an independent music production company specializing in music for media, TV, film, podcasts, video games, advertising, basically any project that needs quality music. They've got a big catalog of ready-to-go music, and they also have standby music composers, producers, and vocalists if you need something custom done. You can do a really effective, quick search to find exactly the kind of music that fits your needs, or, again, they can do something for you custom. Really, really great stuff, and you're doing business with a regular Tom Wood Show listener. The website is GID, that's get it done, GID.sourceaudio.com, GID.sourceaudio.com. I'll link to that Also on the show notes page, tomwoods.com slash 1201, and I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.